we know you didn't come here this morning to watch ABC News, um, but we, Randy found that video last night. We thought it would be really helpful to just give some context to our study this morning and also to kind of give the visual perspective of what it was like and what it looks like there. It really doesn't look very much different today than it did 2,000 years ago. And I've had the joy and the, and the blessing of being there four different times. And standing there when you're in Israel, you're struck by how historically old it feels. So just a little bit of perspective this morning from that video, we, we get the benefit of kind of seeing it through ancient eyes and getting a sense of what it looked like and how real it was. Now, the report talks about this kind of powerful, compelling motivation that brought these wise men from the East and caused them to make such a long journey to see Jesus uh, and how the star led them to Bethlehem. And that's the description, as the report said, that's in the book of Matthew. So let's take our Bibles and turn there, the book of Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning uh, in these 12 verses. As we said a few weeks ago, Scripture isn't clear exactly when the wise men got there. Um, but we know it had to be after the circumcision on the eighth day. We know it had to be after Jesus was, was vented in the temple. Um, so they weren't there uh, at, the, at the manger scene. We know that just because of the chronology of it, because after they come and visit Jesus, uh, Joseph gets the dream warning him to go to Egypt in the middle of the night, and they leave that night. So they couldn't have been at the manger and then Jesus be presented in the temple uh, eight days later. There had to be a gap there. But we do know that they came. And a lot of people have debated, when was it? Was it two to three years later? Because the text changed and it says the child, he's not a, a brand newborn. The problem with that is there was really no reason for Mary and Joseph to stay in, in Bethlehem. Um, certainly after she gave birth, she recovered, and then they had him circumcised, and they went to the temple. So because they were just seven miles away from Jerusalem, it made sense that they would stay there while she recovered. But after that, it would be logical that they would go back to Nazareth. Um, they had family, certainly, that were waiting. That was where home was. Joseph had to get back to work. Um, that was the place where they were going to settle. So it would be surprising and, and kind of lacking in reason for them to stay in Bethlehem for two to three years, especially without any permanent lodging. So we don't know when it was. We know it had to be after at least a week, but somewhere before, let's say, a year, just for the sake of argument, because um, that, that's just how it plays out chronologically. My belief, and this is just me talking, my belief it was probably within the first month. Now, that's important that we get a little bit of the sense of the timing, because for that to happen and for them to make such a long journey, it would have taken them months, they said even years. We don't know that, but certainly China is a long way from Israel. And they're not traveling by high-speed train or by, you know, 747. They're traveling very slow process by caravan, camels and donkeys, walking, whatever the case may be. So that's going to take a very, very long time. Why do we make a big deal about that? Well, they had to leave well before Jesus was ever born. In fact, it is more than likely, and I would say absolutely probable, that they left wherever they were, 
possibly even before Mary got the message from the angel that she was with child. So think about that just for a minute, because we're going to talk again about the leading of the Lord this morning. Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth, maybe even before they know how their lives are going to change. The angel hasn't appeared to them yet. And these men already start the journey to Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph, blissfully unaware, going about their business, planning to get married. And the Lord is already sending these men toward where they're going to be months later. Now, we've been studying a lot about the leading of the Lord this Christmas season, and that makes sense, I think, in light of all that's happened in the last three to four months and how the Lord has been working in a lot of our lives. But I've never seen that theme so clearly as I have this Christmas and, and how it fits into the text here. None of the key figures surrounding the birth of Jesus, including Joseph and Mary, would have experienced what they experienced or understood the magnitude of the incarnation without God's specific leading. We need to see that because there are times, and we're going to talk about it this morning, where God leads in very unique ways. And we need to understand what that means for us. For the Magi, it meant following that star that the Lord had placed in the heavens. And what has been fresh to me over the last two weeks in studying is that it appears from the text that that star was just for them. It doesn't appear that thousands of other people looked up in the sky and said, oh, there's something different now. There's something going on and we need to pay attention to that. The text doesn't say that the shepherds saw it or that they followed it. It doesn't seem that anybody else really even noticed it. We don't see hundreds of astronomers from around the world flocking to Bethlehem because they all saw the same thing. We don't see any of Herod's people, and Herod certainly had astronomers and magicians and all kinds of strange people around him. We don't see any of them anticipating it or knowing about it. In fact, when the wise men show up and say, we've seen a star in the east and we've come to worship the king of the Jews, they're like, what are you talking about? So it didn't appear that anybody in Jerusalem noticed it. Didn't appear that anybody from around the world noticed it. So there, there, you come to the point in studying the text where you say it is very possible that this star was just for these men. Now, how many of us know that when you're looking for the leading of the Lord, He'll reveal it to you? How many of us know that when you are seeking God, He will show you the path? You say, well, He hasn't shown it to me yet. That's all right, it's coming. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it's very immediate. But for the wise men, when they saw that star, it altered their lives to follow it. And the question came to me this week, and I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this, why did they care? Why did they care about a new king in Jerusalem? How would it impact them in any way? What possible benefit was it to make this trip and yet they travel thousands of miles and come prepared with gifts. The logistics of it are, are astounding because especially at that time, it wasn't as we see on the Christmas cards, and sorry now to ruin your image of Christmas cards, it wasn't just three guys on camels with their crowns kind of walking through the desert. There had to be people with them for help and for guidance and for protection. You just didn't travel through the desert carrying gold and frankincense and myrrh unaccompanied. This was a long journey. So what compelled them to do this? Let's look at the text 
chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what's been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Isn't Herod a lovely guy? After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them. Now it's personal and it's moving until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another way. What led them? What compelled them? What prompted them? What brought them on this journey months before the baby was even born all the way across half of the known world at this time? What brought them? When we look at the text, it had to be the star. There was something about it. There was something about that star that compelled them to come. Obviously, it was heavenly, but even more so, it was distinguishable among the other trillions of stars. Now, I don't know if the report uh, that, that uh, Terry Moran had was correct, that they've been looking at it for years. There's no evidence of that in the text. But we do know that when they saw it, they knew. When they saw that star, they knew that it was something specific. How they knew it was a star declaring the birth of the king of the Jews and how they even knew it was over Israel is information that's beyond the text. But there is no doubt that that star was specific and there's no doubt that that star was for them and led them. Now what do we take out of that on December 26, 2010? How does that fit into our lives? Not that we always need to say, well, Scripture's got to fit into my life. We need to fit into Scripture, right? But Scripture always has application, and all Scripture is profitable for us to teach us and correct us and train us in righteousness. So, so what do we learn? It would be enough application just to be in awe that God would do this. It would be enough application just to say, look at what the Lord did, not only in the Incarnation, but in terms of working in their lives this way, that he would even go to this effort to bring these men to see Christ. But there are also some interesting truths here in the text that teach us how God works and how we should respond. Write some things down this morning. Let's interact with the text. It's always be active in terms of our, our study of the Word. Number one, when our heart is open to the Lord, He will lead us in unique ways that draw us closer to His presence. When our heart is open to the Lord, He will lead us in unique ways that draw us closer to His presence. It's fascinating that in these three verses, we only see two direct actions by the wise men toward Jesus. 
The wise men only do two things. After this long journey, after they've come all the way from the east, come to Jerusalem, talked to Herod, waited, gone to Bethlehem, found the baby. They only do two things. They worship him and they present him gifts. That's it. We don't see anything else going on other than those two things. And we'll talk more about both in a couple minutes. But I want you to see the simplicity of this. Because it tells us how much the Lord values us coming into his presence. He leads them halfway around the world just to honor Christ. He leads them halfway around the world so we will see that they came to honor Christ. They see the star, they know they're being led toward the Savior, and they travel for months, patiently continuing day after day, hoping, anticipating, expecting. And when they get there, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. That's a triple, triple emphasis for those of you that are scoring at home. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. There's three levels of praise there. It's like they're so full of joy, and it's so full of joy, and it's so full of joy. It's not just, ah, oh, finally, stinking trip is over. Oh, we're so glad to be here. Can we sit down just for a minute? It's been a long trip. Great to see you guys. Boy, God bless you. I'm so excited what you're doing. This is the baby. Oh, it's wonderful. Can we hold it? It's not that. Right? Say Amen. It's not, it's not just, oh, great, reached our destination. Do you have anything to eat? I mean, is there a little, a little falafel here or some pita or some hummus? They don't care about any of that. When they finally get there, it's like, ah, yes! That's not over the top, right? That's what the text says. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It was so overwhelmingly and demonstrative and oh yes we see him that star stops and they come and they see the baby and they worship him the Lord is always wanting us listen now very important the Lord is always wanting us to come into his presence and to abide. That's why he put his spirit within us. That's why he says, don't forsake what you're doing this morning. Don't, don't stop assembling together. It's why he says, when you pray, you come boldly to my throne of grace. Because I can't wait to see you. I'm so glad you're here. I have joy that my child that I've redeemed and saved by my son is now coming into my presence. And when you come, you come boldly and let your request be made known to me. I want you to be in my presence. I love it when you're with me. And when you are cleansed and pure because of what I've done and my mercy, now you come into me and you're sensitive and you're open to my leading. Oh, you are going to be so thrilled by that child of mine. When your child comes up to you, you're like, oh, I'm so glad to see you, my child. Give me a hug. Come here. Oh, I'm so, I just, I'm, I'm thrilled you're here. Tell me what's on your mind. Exponentially by a trillion. That's how God feels. 
my child. Rhodes, I saved you. I redeemed you. I brought you out, as we sang, love those songs this morning, brought you out of the miry clay. I rescued you from sin. I broke the bondage. I delivered you by my son. Come and be with me in my presence. Don't wander away. Come, come and be with me. And when you draw near to me, I'm going to draw so near to you. When our heart is open to the Lord, God says, I will draw you to my presence. Second, the wise men show us that often God's leading is distinctive just to us. God's leading is distinctive just to us. He designs his leading many times specifically for us. That means when we study his word and we seek him and we yield to his spirit, we may discover that we're on an assignment that nobody else has. I don't know how many wise men there were. I'm sure there had to be some type of large caravan, but I personally believe that the number of true magi, the number of true wise men was smaller rather than larger because there seems to be something unique here about the message that these men discern from the Lord. And I have to wonder what their conversations were like over all those months. I always like to try to get my mind into the text and feel what it was like to actually be with them. So I kind of tried to put my mind in the caravan. What are these men talking about? As they're traveling for months, what's the conversation like? Have you ever sensed God leading you, but, but there are only a few people that really understood what was going on? And you kind of got close to them and say, uh, Lord's doing something in my life right now. And, and if I tell people this, they're going to think I'm absolutely crazy. So you're, you're my buddy, you're my friend. Can I just confide in you? I got a couple of friends like that. Just let me just talk to you. I need, we need to go to lunch because the Lord's doing some, some really wild stuff. And those people you can confide in, you can share with and they go, all right, well, let's, let's pray about this, let's talk about this. Yeah, I do believe the Lord's leading in that way. You better watch out for this. Go slowly on that. I, I think that's what it was like for these men. It's not in the text. I'm, I'm just trying now to, to kind of dive into it and see and put the, the reality of what it was like. Maybe these guys were friends. Certainly they were probably colleagues. But listen, they had heard from the Lord and they were being led by the Lord. And as they talked about it and kept looking at that star, there was a strong sense of joy that there was a specific calling just for them. And then they get to Jerusalem and it's confirmed because nobody knows what they're talking about. And they get to the, to the place where Jesus was and in some senses, they might be expecting there's going to be a crowd. But they get there's nobody there. Just Mary and Joseph and the baby. When the Lord calls us and leads us in that kind of way, and we know there's something specific going on that's unique to us, the best response is to trust Him implicitly and to stay completely faithful to Him because he is doing something unique. And rather than be intimidated by it or say, well, I better get some people to, to share with this because this seems a little weird. Instead, we just need to say, Lord, this is your leading right now. I, I don't know what it means. I don't know why you picked me, but I will follow you. And I will trust you and you will be faithful. Third, this is a long one. I'll say it twice. God's leading requires in us 
a greater sacrifice of our will, comfort, and rationalization. God's leading requires in us a greater sacrifice of our will, comfort, and rationalization. And there's a reason for this. It's so that those things, our will and our comfort and our rationalization, don't inhibit our willingness and our faithfulness to trust and follow as the Lord leads. There has to be a sacrifice of our will and our comfort and, and what kind of we want to we wanna make it make sense. Okay, that's what I mean by rationalization. There has to be a greater sacrifice of that because those things, as good as they are, can inhibit our willingness and our faithfulness to follow the Lord as He leads. You can only imagine <coughs> the personal cost that this trip re required. Not just monetarily, because it would have cost money to do, but also in terms of their daily lives and their families and their jobs. How did they explain this? I mean, traveling from, let's just say it was China, for the sake of argument, traveling from China to Jerusalem now would be a huge trip. Back then, it was unthinkable. So, how did they explain it? Were they married? Did they have kids? Were, were those people along? Or, and if so, how did they explain the length of the trip? Did they work for anybody? How did they get the time off from work to be able to make this long a trip? Who were they open to about who they were going to see and what they were going to see? Did people ridicule them? Were they like Noah, kind of like, yeah, we're going to see uh, the king of the Jews in Bethlehem. We're, we saw a star. People are going, what? What are you talking about? You guys have jobs and families. I'm just speculating here. But have you ever thought about it that way? We, we always see the picture of these kind of austere men on their camels. You ever ridden a camel? It's not fun. And they're on their steer camels and they're, they're kind of stately, right? You ever seen, you ever seen a, a Christmas card with the wise men where they're just kind of casual hanging out? Nobody, right? It's always... They kind of, you know, like their knees don't bend when they walk. These are real men. Maybe with families, maybe with kids, maybe with jobs. Did they hit resistance? Did they lose their jobs for making this trip? What guarantees, if any, did they have when they went home? Were there ever moments on this journey where they questioned what they were doing? Often those questions and those doubts can stunt our faith and our obedience and they may even prevent us from following the clear direction of the Lord because we're unwilling to make that kind of personal sacrifice. But the Lord doesn't say, walk by sight, not by faith, does He? Does He? No. You guys are a little slow this morning. Too much eggnog. He doesn't say, hey, Paul, you're going to get to walk by sight every day. Just the opposite. That means that self and control and plans and preference and comfort and security may all take a hit in the short term because that's what God needs to do to refine us and to teach us to walk by faith. Walking by faith doesn't always mean easy, simple, clear, understandable, rational, happy. 
You'll know what's going on. Everything will be great. No problems, no sacrifice. Now, what's interesting is when you compare the attitude and the actions of the wise man to Herod and to Israel. Look back at the text for a minute. The Magi come with the expectation, the anticipation of finding Jesus, but notice that they don't go straight to the palace. They just start to ask around. It hit me this week, it seems a little brash, but I don't think they're aware that they're going to create this much controversy. There's an important spiritual principle that's hidden right there. When it's God-ordained leading, the right path will be obvious to us. It's kind of like we won't be able to imagine it being any other way. They came to worship Him. They knew that it was right. They didn't care who knew. And they weren't intimidated or beholden to anybody. They had a pure desire to see Him. They were going to worship Him. And they weren't going to be distracted or dissuaded or sidetracked. But look at all the others in verse 3. It says, when Herod heard the news, he was what? Tell me loudly. Troubled. He was troubled. Was he the only one that was troubled? Who else was troubled? All Jerusalem with him. So the Magi come and they say, we saw a star in the east and we've come to see the king of the Jews. Tell us where he is. And Herod is troubled and all Jerusalem is troubled. Now, interesting word, troubled there. In the Greek, it means agitated, stirred up, filled with fear and dread in your spirit. Now, we can understand why Herod felt that way because his throne is in jeopardy. But why does all Jerusalem feel that way? When the news comes that Messiah's been born, because that's what we know is happening, because you see it in verse and in verse 5, it says they inquired about the Messiah. So this is what Israel has waited for for decades and centuries. In fact, if you go to the Wailing Wall today, there are still people sticking pieces of paper in the Western Wall praying for Messiah to come. But it says right here, they said, where's Messiah born? And they know. Why were they disturbed? Why were they scared? Are they just afraid of change? Are they restless about the unknown? Or is it something far more spiritual? After 400 years of silence, which had followed centuries of rebellion and scattering and slavery, weren't they looking for good news? Weren't they anticipating this? Weren't they ready to be redeemed? Hopeful that the Lord would start talking again? Or were their hearts that hardened? This is what happens when sin infiltrates us. It closes us off and we start to dread the confrontation of God. For those who love His appearing, they couldn't wait. Zechariah gets the news in the temple and he rejoices. My son is going to be the one to prepare the way. There were some that were looking. But most are filled with dread. So look at how sin causes us to respond. Instead of getting right with the Lord, sin tells us, as it does here, you see it in verse 8 and verse 9, sin tells us to try to take control and eliminate what causes that dread and to act like it never happened. 
And if there's collateral damage to people as we try to control the process, well, then that's just the price of war. Do you know how many babies are going to be sacrificed because Herod and the people's hearts were hardened? And I'm sure Herod just dismissed that as the collateral damage of war because if there's a threat to the throne, then we've got to start killing people. And of course, if there's a threat to the throne, the logical people to kill would be children under two, right? We can always tell how we're doing with the Lord by how we respond to conviction. If we are immediately humbled and drawn to repent and get right with the Lord, we know that our hearts are receptive to Him. But if we are resistant and we blame others and circumstances and try to find a way out, we know that we're not right with God. It's not hard to figure out where Herod stands. He gathers the chief priests and the scribes and he says, let's find out what's going on. They obviously didn't know or they would have warned him in advance. But I want you to see again, I mentioned this a second ago, look back at verse 4 and verse 5, and then in verse 8. He knew this was the Messiah. The people knew this was the Messiah. Think about the implications of that. He didn't kill all the two-year-old boys because he was scared of a coup d'etat. He knew from the outset who he was dealing with. They all knew it was the Messiah from day one, which means that the threats of Herod and the spiritual rejection of the people were even more intentional. He says, where is Messiah going to be born? And they say, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And for once, they start quoting the prophets. And Herod must believe, listen now, he must believe this is authentic because he tells the wise men, well, then get to Bethlehem. If Messiah is being born, and he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, according to the scripture, which we haven't dusted off for 400 years. Okay, what's it say? It says he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Okay, Messiah is born in Bethlehem. Wise men, get to Bethlehem. Why, if he doesn't believe this is really Messiah, does he send them to Bethlehem? He could say, well, then go to Jericho. Or go to Caesarea. Or go to Tiberias. But he says, go to Bethlehem. No one is oblivious at this point. The prophets have said what God's going to do. They said the Savior would be born. The wise men show up and said, we saw it. It's happened. The Savior's been born. And the whole city's terrified. And, and Herod is disturbed. And he says, go to Bethlehem and find out what's going on. There is absolute culpability here. Never saw that before. Never thought about it before. But Herod's still trying to be clever and sneaky. Look at the text. Verse 7, he secretly calls the Magi. Ooh, it's all deceptive now. now. Don't you love how the Spirit of God writes? All the adjectives he uses are important. He secretly called the Magi because before he had called all the chief priests and all the scribes of the people. Where is this going to happen, he says from his throne. And then... Knowing what's going on, middle of the night, he summons the Magi. Come to the palace. Nobody knows about it. Chief priests, they're asleep. Scribes, out cold. And you kind of see it. Picture it now. Come on. Picture it. Middle of the night, here they come. And Herod's all by himself on the throne. And he dismisses all the courtiers. Get out. I want to talk to these men. I want you to go to Bethlehem 
and I want you to find him. Because when you find him, I want to come worship him. What a lie. He had no intention of worshiping the Savior. How many know that the Lord's not fooled by our deceptions? He says, uh, as he grasps for straws for control, what time was he born? Like he can interpret that. Go and let me know so I can come and worship. Listen, if he was sincere, why didn't he lead the way? Why didn't he gather all the chief priests and scribes and say, God has fulfilled his prophecy. He has fulfilled his word. This is the day we waited for. Messiah's come. I'm now going to lead you, Israel. Gather everybody in Jerusalem. We're not going to be troubled by this. This is the Lord working. Let's go. I'll be the first one in line and I will bow my knee to Messiah. But he doesn't do that, does he? Go find him. And when you find him, come back and tell me. And, and I'm going to go worship him. He thinks they're the, his little pawns. But listen, the Lord was leading them, right? They, they weren't listening to some crummy king. So look at verse 9. The star stood over the place where Jesus was. Here's the fourth principle of God's leading. When we're really willing to follow him, the Lord's leading will be faithful and direct. When we're really willing to follow him, the Lord's leading will be faithful and direct. For the wise men, there could be no mistaking what the Lord was doing. He had given them insight in the first place to discern the star, and now he's showing them specifically what they're looking for. God is gracious that way. It means that when we have our hearts attuned to the Spirit and our will ready to follow without questioning and hesitation, he will lead us. He leads them. They come into His presence. And as we saw earlier, they rejoice with exceeding joy. Why? Because there are few things more satisfying in the Christian walk than knowing that you have correctly discerned the specific leading of the Lord and that it has brought you into the presence of the Lord. And that's the passion of their response. How much greater is that joy when we understand how much closer we are to Him because He's led us and how He's conformed us to Him and made us more complete, even though that time of leading was difficult. And again, it's a fresh insight how much they actually rejoice over seeing Jesus. These are prominent, wealthy, influential men, and they fall flat on their faces in the dirt to worship Him. Don't just, hey, Christmas cards again, right? We're Hallmark. They're trying. The, the Christmas cards, am I right? Christmas cards are like this. Anybody seen one of those? Anybody send one of those this year? Back straight, crowned on perfectly, robes flowing, right? With a neatly packaged gift that the wife put together back in China. Have you ever seen a Christmas card or an image where the wise men are like this. Because that's what the text says. They fell on their faces to the ground and they worshiped him. We focus so much on the gifts. Well, it was gold, represented his kingship, 
and myrrh. Listen, that's all great. Good. We should do studies on that. But I don't know if I've ever heard or even preached about the fact of their worship. What brought them there? To bring presents? How, how secular Christmas of us. What brought them there was true worship. We have come to worship Him. Not we have come to give Him presents. We have come to worship Him. Why did God bring them there? To worship. Joseph and Mary were blessed. The shepherds were joyful and told others and became evangelists. But the wise men worshipped. What if our worship was like the wise men? We've heard countless sermons on giving. And I hope there will be very few here at Harbor Rock because I believe we're going to give joyfully as unto the Lord and we're not even really going to have to talk about it. That's my hope. But there are a few two messages on real, authentic, passionate worship. We talk a great game, but is that the reality? What inhibits us from that? Really, it's the same thing that inhibits giving. It's selfishness, or in this case, self-consciousness. Now, that doesn't give us a license to, to make a show of ourselves. This is not a, a, a about us. It's not about me raising my hands so people will see, hey, he's raising his hands. It's not about me dancing in the aisles or whatever you've been in one of those churches. And dancing in the aisles. That's fine. Joy of the Lord and all that. That's good. But listen, don't be a distraction. Worship's not about me. It's not about people saying, well, look at him. He's really worshiping. I worship most of the time with my eyes closed because I don't want to be distracted. Just, just let's just think about the Lord here. What has the Lord done for us? Oh, He's been so good to us, right? Come on, say amen to that. He's been good to us. But it does mean that we don't hold back because of what others think. My hope and prayer is that our praise and our prayer and our singing and our fellowship here at Harbor Rock Tabernacle will always be strong and fervent and passionate and that we will joyfully show our love for the Lord. Let's not ever hold back. Just because we're meeting in the Marriott or maybe we say, well, it's not part of how I was raised and, and it's not my tradition and not my culture. Or I grew up in this church or this church. Or I'm concerned if I sing loudly how bad somebody will hear me singing or that they'll think I'm weird if I raise my hands or don't wave. Listen, it is not about that. Do we love the Lord or not? And if we do, then we better worship Him. The Magi came and they worshipped Christ openly and passionately and they gave Him the best they could bring. Now look at the aftermath. We're done. i got to finish. Look at the end of the passage. God says to them, don't go back to Herod. Don't glide over that verse because that verse has major implications. Think about that. They're defying a direct order from the king. And i got to tell you, we don't have time to develop it. This king was not a nice guy. He was known for his brutality and his cruelty. If we need evidence of that, look what happens after he knows that the Magi have blown him off. 
He says, fine, I'll take care of the problem myself. Since they didn't come back and tell me so I could go pull out my sword and kill that baby, we'll just kill every baby that's male, that's under two, in the whole nation. Let's just make sure we wipe them all out. So they're defying a direct order from him. They're, they're maybe disappointing him if he actually was sincere. They're risking the potential recourse of the people and they're inconvenienced because they have to go home a different way. You remember in the report it says there was a trade route to China. It was called the Spice Route. What well, says in the text, this is not coincidental from the Holy Spirit, he says they had to go home another way. Because if it was obvious, let's just say for the sake of argument, that the spice route was the route back to China, Herod, when he knows they don't come back, could say, fine, tell my buddies down in Jericho to put some sentries on the road, and when the Magi come back with their big caravan, you bring them back to me. But he says in the text, the Spirit says, they had to go a different way. That's an inconvenience. Why did they do it? Look at the verse one more time. Verse 12. Because they heard the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord changed their plans and put them in an awkward, even potentially dangerous situation. But they obeyed it. What a statement to how we should approach the Lord's leading and direction in our lives. This is different from our study of Joseph and Mary because it's not a complete transformation of their personal lives and it's not the pressure of social alienation. It is something that they actually could have chosen to ignore. After all, Herod's not going to punish them. What do they care what Herod does? They could go back and say, we found him. He's right there in Bethlehem at that house. You're probably not going to have the star leading you because when we were following it, it came right over the house, so we knew exactly where we were going. Now, we can't tell you that, but it's at this and this address. Herod, you go back. And, and by the way, we got a long trip back. There's a little reward for bringing that information you didn't know about. Maybe grease the palm a little bit. Uh, by the way, it's been nice to meet you, Herod. Hope there's a 20 in your hand as you shake hands with me. Here's the problem. Apparently, verse 12, they each had the same dream. Doesn't matter how many there are, whether it's two or three or dozens, because the Lord led them all in the same direction. Being warned in a dream, think about that, all of them must have had the same dream. Being warned in a dream, they didn't go back to Herod. They went home another way. Listen, when we sacrifice ourselves to him, he will never fail to lead us in the right way. And we will never be troubled in our spirit by his leading. I'm done. Listen. What is God leading you to do in 2011? Nobody knows right now but him. But you can be sure that there will be many times of fresh direction. Many times when he asks you to trust him on a deeper level. How will you respond and how will I respond? There is no doubt in my mind that he is leading this church in 2011. Four months ago, we didn't even know we existed. Think about that. Just four months ago, we did not even know that we were going to be here. He knows the plans he has for us. 
What does he want now? In 2011, does he lead us to a building or do we stay here? Does he add more times that we can meet? Does he expand our ministry? Does he push us forward in outreach? Do we start to support missions? Do we add staff? Who knows? I got no idea. And I'm supposed to lead this bunch. I got no idea. But I do know that there will be many times of fresh direction. And if we seek Him and we trust in Him, He will lead us. And we will immediately respond when He makes it clear. And we will say, Lord, that's the way. I promise you that as your pastor. That is what we will do. So let's continue to praise Him as we go to prayer, let's praise Him individually. Let's ask Him to direct us like He led the wise men so that when we reach those places where God is saying, go here, go here, go here, that we will, church, rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We praise You for what You have done in our lives. We praise You for what You have done in forming this church. Lord, five, six months ago, none of us had a clue. You had plans already laid out, like the wise men starting the journey before Mary maybe was even with child. They started. You started those plans for us. You have plans for each of us for 2011 that we know nothing about. Some of them may be difficult. Some of them may be wonderful. But Lord, our desire and our plan and our willingness is to follow You. To follow Your leading. To not look around, not be fearful, not be hesitant, not be stirred up in our spirit, and disturbed, and whatever the case may be. Just to follow. So Lord, we ask You to lead us. Clearly, You love us because You saved us. Clearly, You value us because You put Your Spirit in us. Clearly, You have an eternal plan for us because You've secured us forever. So Lord, we ask You every day to lead us. We ask You that our hearts would be receptive, sensitive, and completely willing as we trust You to move forward. We praise You in advance for Your mercy. We praise You in advance for Your love and for Your faithfulness, which are beyond our comprehension. And we ask You now to do this work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.